Hello everyone, this is Sean A. Barksdale. We are at the Red Hill Patrick Memorial Quarter Place Commemoration and Celebration for the slaves who lived here, worked here, and who helped build Red Hill, and they also died here. We are here with Mr. Mark Cuvion. How you doing, sir? Doing well, thank you. Beautiful. Uh, our own call historian. Yes, sir. Uh, worked at Red Hill in the 80s. You've been working at Colonial Williamsburg roughly around the last 30 years? Yes, sir. Nice. <laughs> uh, while still connected to Red Hill? Yes. Oh, nice, man. All right, you serve as a trustee for Patrick Henry Memorial for 10 years? Yes. Now you're cu uh, a curator. Uh, yes, I help with um, anything they need, be it, <clears throat> excuse me, be it um, research, training, okay. the docents, um, um, anytime a visitor has a question or a staff member, they send it my way to, to answer, mm. send it back. Okay. So, you also on-call historian. You also do articles for the newspaper newsletter? Yes, the Red Hill newsletter. Wow. In fact, That's the, a lot of work, brother. Yes, the one coming up, um, I think in the next issue actually has to deal with uh, Patrick Henry and his role in chipping away at mm. slavery. Okay. That's going to be nice. That's going to be nice. So what type of trainings do you do? Uh, usually uh, in, the, in the winter when it's slow, okay. um, the staff will get together and uh, we'll just go over things that um, most of these docents might be new. They might be here for a while and need a refresher course. So just talk about Patrick Henry's time here at Red Hill, what he did. Uh, how many acres he owned, what the buildings looked like, and of course uh, the enslaved that were that were here, uh, the children, uh, family life. So just kind of overall okay. cover for the docents to uh, to have a fresher course. Understood. Understood. I hear that you're quite the writer. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. How many books have you written? Um, five. Five books. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> uh, all of those, all of those books are dealing with the history and uh, of of Patrick Henry and Red Hill. Yes. Uh, usually, I look for things that biographers have kind of either glossed over or uh, you know didn't really go into detail, and so I try to find uh, things um, just to dig deeper. Like my latest book is on Patrick Henry's marriage to his first wife, Sarah Shelton. Mm. Uh, she developed mental illness. Mm. Um, there's a lot of stories around that, especially on the internet, yes. a lot of false stories. So I want to try to be as accurate as possible, figuring out when it started, her illness, what she had, how she was treated. So again, trying to uh, just um, separate fact from from fiction. Correct, Yeah. correct. Uh, and uh, the one of the other books, my first book I did was on uh, the many different homes uh, that Patrick Henry lived in. He lived in 13 different homes throughout mm. Virginia. And so it's kind of a, a guidebook, but it's also his biography woven into all these different places. And uh, you can actually, there's even directions if you want a Sunday trip mm. to go and visit some of these lo locations. When I spoke earlier today, uh, I, being that it's 10 minutes of truth, I told the truth. I didn't know a lot about Patrick Henry. 
I didn't know a lot about Red Hill. I definitely didn't know anything about the slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, because of that, once I started doing my investigation, we started collecting information. His first marriage is the connection to him in slavery. True. That I, mean, I, that, that I believe. Yeah, I mean, yes, he grew up in a, a slave society, of course. His father owned slaves, okay. his aunts and uncles, his half-brothers. So from the very beginning, mm. he was surrounded with the uh, slave um slavery. Mm -hmm. and uh, But it wasn't until he was 18, upon his marriage to Sarah Shelton in 1754, that part of his uh, her dowry, uh, or we want to say wedding present right. given to him by his father-in-law father was uh, six slaves and 300 acres of land. Uh, his own father, John Henry, also uh, gave uh, him four or five uh, slaves. Hmm. So he begins his married life, 18, as a slave owner for the first time hmm. uh, with uh, at least 10 enslaved people. Hmm. But it wouldn't be until a decade later in 1764 when he purchases uh, his own slave, okay. a man named Isaac, uh, that he becomes a slave owner of his own hmm. purchase. Right. So before they were given to him, but now he's starting to buy and sell enslaved people. Mm. Uh, Mr. Kubion, you have such a rich history, uh, 30, 40-year history. Uh, it, it, it's impossible within 15, 20 minutes. We're going to have to revisit because you have a plethora of an abundance of information about this. I want to talk about uh, something remarkable that you found in 1980. You were uh, you stumbled up on uh, something. What what was that? <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. Uh, we were on a lunch break. The uh, curator at that time period, <clears throat> and me and the receptionist, we okay. were just roaming around trying to find foundations for mm -hmm. some of the old uh, cabins, and we come up on this ridge, and before you know it, we're standing in a, a field with these stones. Mm. And we quickly realized seeing, you know, what we, a headstone and footstone that were in the middle of a, a, grave, a graveyard. Wow. And to my knowledge, uh, that's the first time, at least in recent uh, history, that the uh, enslaved graveyard was rediscovered as it was. I'm mm. sure the people around here connected to it knew about it, but the, the foundation, uh, as far as I know, really kind of just lost in the, the memory of the uh, Patrick Hammer Memorial Foundation until 1985 mm. when we, we came across the, uh, the graveyard. Uh, we did a brief count, and at that time period, we only... Uh, I'd, I think it was like 65 or 67 stones. Of course, the, they're still covered with, with grass and so forth. And of course, since then, it's more than doubled wow. that number with uh, the archaeological work wow. that has been done. So it was a, a really, um, what do you want to call it, um, sensitive moment. I mean, mm. just the, being in the presence, knowing that it was a, a graveyard of these people who worked for Patrick Henry. They had their own families and right. so forth. And here right. we see, you know, it, it, it hits, it right. becomes a reality Absolutely. when you're standing 
in this middle of this graveyard. Uh, Thank you for being nosy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Because this is how I become a part of this, how I can help move that narrative, as I said, about my ancestors and telling that history and helping to get this information out. How did the Quarter Place earn the name? Well, Quarter Place, we we find, in fact, in Patrick Henry's will, uh, another piece of property he owned 18 miles up the river, Long Island, which he lived in for two years before purchasing Red Hill. Okay. Uh, he refers to where the uh, enslaved were living as the quarter place, okay. the you know, home quarter, uh, the quarters. And mm-hmm. so uh, we just kind of adapted that name that he used <clears throat> at his one property for this property. And then in the early 19th centuries, we okay. start seeing that area referred to as the quarter place. Mm. So no doubt it was called that during Patrick Henry's time as well. Okay. And um, we're hoping to find more cabins. At, at present, we know the location of about three or four, uh, but we know from documentation, uh, a census that was done, that they had at least 12 cabins. And uh, during Patrick Henry's time, he had about 20 more slaves than this 1850 census um, when there were about uh, 50 enslaved people on the property. So they probably had at least 12 to 14 uh, slave quarters somewhere on the property that yet to be discovered. So that's where archaeology is really going to play an important role, not only telling us where they lived, the size of the building, but also what they were eating, what they were eating off of and discarding. We can find a, a lot of a lot of that with uh, the help of archaeology. Oh, uh, I, I'm excited to learn. As I'm learning, it, it, as you guys are learning, I'm, I'm very excited about the future of uh, learning about the quarter place. Patrick Henry was a lawyer for a long time. Yes, sir. He was on the road <clears throat> months at a time, of course. During this time, with the slaves overseas, themselves, like slaves oversee the slaves, or how would that be? Uh, Typically, uh, Patrick Henry had at least one overseer. Uh, This would have been a a paid uh, white person that would oversee uh, and direct the the slaves. I haven't yet found him um, having a overseer here at Red Hill. Okay. So since he was quote, retired mm-hmm. during the last few years of his life, he might have been overseeing the plantation doing morning rounds like George Washington would do at Mount Vernon. Okay. And he probably had a foreman, a trusted enslaved person to help him out. At Long Island, which he owned at the same time as Red Hill, uh, he did have a full-time uh, overseer there, a man named uh, John Bradley, and then he was replaced by a man named Robert Pruitt. Mm. And so you have to kind of trust that he's going to be overseeing them cor- uh, correctly uh, right. and, and properly. Um, but yes, uh, I pretty much we are able to look at his account books and see pretty much throughout his life while he's on the road as an, an attorney having uh, an overseer on his property. Okay. And may I add... If you look at how many enslaved people Patrick Henry had at the time of his death, yes, it's a large number, right. 98. 
But if you look at Washington that had over 300, um, Jefferson having over 200, in comparison, his is uh, rather low the number. And I think one reason for that, as such a successful attorney, um, he wasn't having to rely solely on agriculture for his money. And so I think that's one reason why you don't see two or 300 enslaved names on the inventory here at Red Hill, because throughout his adult life, uh, the majority of his income was from his law practice and not tobacco or wheat or what have you. Okay. This moves us into another segment of his life. You saying that on his travels somewhere, he ran into another type of trade which would be whiskey. Yeah, this is something that we've just recently started to dig deeper in okay. uh, here at Red Hill. Um, and it's one of the, it's ironically one of the most uh, documented um, things we have, primary sources. Um, in his inventory, it lists three stills, whiskey stills, ranging from 30 gallons up to 130 gallons. Mm. Um we have a letter that was written by Patrick Henry in 1796 trying to find a um, distiller uh, to hire to look after the process and um, also saying that he thinks he has enough rye and corn from Red Hill and his Long Island property okay. to keep his stills going. We have his license that he had to get from the county court to make it Legal and not moonshine. Got it. And uh, it seems like he was running the still uh, five months out of the the year here at Red Hill. And he was probably making uh, about 15, roughly conservative estimate, about 15 gallons a day. So probably around 2,000 gallons a year he was producing. So this was probably next to his tobacco um, crops, his second uh, most... um, where his income was coming from. Okay. So and that's about five months out of the year that he would be running the distillery? Yes, from November to April. Okay. And um, this also ties in great with the enslaved story here. That's what I was about to ask. Uh, what were their jobs inside of? Yeah, of course, they're going to be working in the fields, right. help, you know, uh, cultivating the, the wheat, excuse me, the corn, the rye, the barley that was used at this time period for whiskey. They're going to be gathering the wood to keep the stills going, the fire, uh, gathering the water, probably mixing mm-hmm. the ingredients with the help of the distiller to get the right amounts. They would be a cooper on the property, a barrel maker. Maybe uh, the enslaved man named Jesse, uh, we think he was a, um, a skilled craftsman because of the amount he was valued at, 200 pounds. That was the highest of any of the enslaved people oh, well, of what their worth was I valued out. So he might have been a blacksmith or a cooper making right. the barrels to right. put the whiskey in. Okay. And then you had to have uh, enslaved help to get the whiskey carted to— right. The, a tavern or a store at Hanover, I mean, excuse me, a Charlotte Courthouse and so forth. So they would be involved in every single step, step of up. the process. Hmm. Tell our audience about a particular slave named Shadrach. He, he held a distinct uh, piece 
he yeah, had Red Hill. Even though we have the names of the 67 enslaved people who lived here, unfortunately, it didn't list what they, they did. Right. And so we've been trying to find through letters or Henry's account book, if it mentions anything. And a few months after Patrick Henry's death mm-hmm. uh, in 1800, his um, his um, uh, widow, Dorothea, uh, is writing uh, a family member saying that she's sending Shadrach, the coachman, to pick up uh, their son at um, Hampton, Sydney, mm-hmm. which is what about... Uh, an hour right. uh, away by car, right. and uh, so that's one of the few times we can, you know, mm-hmm. you know tell what the um, the job and the enslaved. And uh, I, it's interesting because you have to trust Shadrach enough right. to send him alone to pick up the son and not just keep going. And so we know that he must have been uh, uh, a trusted. Um, member of the slave community here at at Red Hill. Right. Absolutely. Uh, From what I understand, what I know, in those instances, it's because of the relationship that is built of trust, because we know uh, that the master and the slave, they had um, a simple... uh, their relationship, the relationship that they had, he knew that it was his master. He knew that was his slave. But you, you, you see p- these people every day. Yeah. And very similar to today's incarceration, mm-hmm. in prison is very similar to slavery mm-hmm. uh, when you look at it. And as you go along, you gain a bond, right? Yes. You gain a bond with your warden or you gain a bond with the overseer. So depending on who you are yeah. and your character. Um, so that is going to help us moving along to be able to distinguish these relationships and get this information out into the communities, right? Um, you, you I, I have an interesting story. Yeah. Um, in the early 1900s, about 1905, a Patrick Henry biographer came to Red Hill and he talked to some of the uh, black inhabitants right. around the area and they gave him a number of anecdotes that were passed down hmm. through their family. Right. And one has to deal with, uh, I don't know if you came across this name, uh, Uncle Solomon. Uncle Solomon. Yeah, he's listed okay. on the inventory. He was probably only about 15 or 16 years okay. old. Okay. But he was uh, supposedly a very strong gotcha. individual. And the story passed down is that when Patrick Henry wanted to cross the Stanton River, to get to his property on the other side, Halifax, he would get on Uncle Solomon's shoulders really? and uh, they would ford the, the river. And they said that uh, the old timers never laughed so hard when they uh, try, when Solomon tried to get his or prevent his master from getting, getting wet. Right. And so uh, this is just gives you this glimpse into this, uh, you know, this one anecdote of one of his enslaved people, Henry on his shoulders right. going across the uh, the uh, Stanton River, and it it made an impact as it was passed down, probably at least uh, two or three generations for them to tell the uh, the biographer. Hmm. I just thought I'd just throw that absolutely, <laughs> and absolutely. he's no doubt buried 
you know, Solomon at, in the grave. And I oh, thought wow. about these stories of Uncle Solomon and Jack White, uh, who was half Indian. Um, when I was walking around that, that graveyard, these names that come out of that early 1900 book, right. yeah, it kind of really made an impact. Mr. Kuvion, well, I've, of course, I don't have the time as I, I spoke of earlier, but I'm going to have to bring you back because something interesting happens with the Whiskey Rebellion. Yes. Sorry. We, I, I know we're not going to be able to talk about it today, but um, can I get a commitment for you to come back on the show? Certainly. <laughs> because the tie in between what happens with uh, Alexander Hamilton and the, and, and the new uh uh, uh, law, right? Uh, we have to dig into that. Yeah. We, we have to tell that story because there's a lot dealing with the enslaved. There's a lot dealing with taxation and the new government. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. And can, and can I just add one more thing? Absolutely. What is it? I just want to, you know, when people come to Red Hill, it's such a beautiful and peaceful Absolutely. place. And it's easy to forget that there were over 75 people right. living here, not just uh, Patrick Henry's family that right. had 10 or 11 people living on the property, but again, at least 67 enslaved. And you would hear the hammering mm. of the blacksmith, the smells coming from the kitchen, right. the animals mooing and so forth. And we we often forget that it was a thriving community Correct. of both black and white living here in two different, different worlds, right. but on the same right. property. And, yeah. and through those books that you have, we definitely look to tell those stories. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate you.